0: In three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, a man who at an early age knew that military service was in his future. Having a father that not only served in World War II, but was then called back to active duty for the Korean War... His father's commitment to his country left a lasting impact in this guest's mind. He spent an extraordinary amount of time in the woods near his house learning field craft, but he also spent time in a homemade lab located in his childhood barn learning the science of chemistry and love for learning. After high school, this guest studied at the University of South Carolina until he decided to take a break and join the American war effort in Vietnam. Joining the Army in the chemical corps, he quickly changed his mind and got transferred to the infantry, where he completed airborne training, ranger school, special forces selection, before he finally joined the coveted MACV SOG teams, going across the fence into parts unknown to take the fight directly to the MVA and other communist regimes. After completing a career of over 21 years in the U.S. Army, this guest became CEO of High Performing Solutions and author of the acclaimed book, The Stress Effect which teaches anyone willing to learn how to make decisions under high stress and suicide prevention. Please welcome Henry L. Thompson, a.k.a. Dynamite, into the studio. What's going on, my friend? Oh, excited to be here. Been waiting to talk to you. Stryker got us together. He told me, man, you got to talk to this guy next. So I said, let's get him on the schedule as fast as we can and talk to him as we did in the opening, let's kind of talk about your childhood a little because it's pretty interesting. Your mom had five brothers that fought in World War II. Your father fought in World War II and then was called back to active duty to fight in the Korean War. So that really set a tone for you. Can we kind of talk about your childhood and how you came to kind of love the military and everything that it was about?
1: Well, I think, you know, like you say, all of my uncle's were in World War II as well as my father, but I was either not there or uh, a little young. But by the time Korea came along, I was old enough to understand what people were talking about, able to ask questions. And I, I became very curious about the military, what people do. So I asked a lot of questions about it. You know, what is a squad? What is a platoon? What do they do? why they set up that way, began to talk about tactics. And, you know, by that time I was starting to spend time out in the woods, gradually learn how to track animals, move through the woods quietly, uh, understand how things moved in the woods, what gave them away, trying to make myself invisible. So I didn't scare them off, uh, scare off the different animals. As I got a little older, began to play army a lot with my cousins, and eventually formed our own uh, ranger company. Started out with my cousins in that, and then we added some uh, outsiders uh, in. So we had our own army, we built forts, we used different tactics, techniques, whatever we could learn from my father or or my uncles. You know, I had a BB gun you know, by the time I was five or, or so, I had a BB gun so I could practice marksmanship. Uh, shoot at birds, snakes, whatever I found. And working with my cousin Carl, we um, learned how to cook our own birds that we would shoot, cook them over a little campfire. We would uh, spend a night out in the woods uh, by ourselves. you know, still on our property, but out in a wooded area. I just kind of grew grew up doing that.
0: You're like age five, age six, and you've already got a BB gun. You're already staying out in the fields by yourself, out in the woods by yourself. And and I think you've said it in even younger age than five. You were going out into the woods by yourself and kind of learning it. That kind of stuff, really, I don't think would happen today. Do you think that kind of freedom, that kind of individuality that you had? really helped you out in your military career because I have a feeling with how you describe everything by listening to the woods learning to be invisible that was something that really paid off for you in the end
1: yeah I mean that was the beginning of of my training uh and was able to come back and use that once I got in the army you know so I so as I was growing up and getting bigger getting stronger uh more skilled at the techniques and practicing that because i was I played army a lot until i i started with the chemistry part that began to take some time away from um you know some of the military type things that i was practicing and, and doing but i still studied tactics i still uh, worked with explosives worked with building rockets uh as well as you know trying to um change brains between frogs and birds and change hearts and things like that but um i just i couldn't get their i, I couldn't get their heart started again you know i would run electricity through them um but it just um it never managed to get their hearts beating again but you know i was trying i was working on it i learned you know some different medical skills i've got a hold of some old medical books that a lady's son had left at the house after he finished medical school, she had a lot of his books that he had used. She gave them to me, so I was able to go through the books and study anatomy and different things, um, biochemistry. You know, so I I was doing a lot of work like that, but also building building the rockets, learning explosives. How do you make them? And at at that time. You could go to the local pharmacy, you know, we typically call it a drugstore. You could go there and buy a lot of chemicals, you know, as long as you were old enough or you had your mother go with you and say, it's okay, he can have nitric acid, sulfuric acid, you know, whatever he's wanting, let him have it. Uh, he knows what he's doing. So, and, you know, I could make a lot of things. The old the old chemistry books were like recipe books, whereas, you know, the ones today tell you conceptually about different things. The old books said, here's how much of this chemical you put. This is what you do. I mean, it's just like baking a cake. (laughs) If you wanted to create some other kind of chemical, I mean, it it told you how to do it. So, you know, that was a good deal. You could you could learn a lot on your own like that.
0: Well, let me ask you when, you, when you say that you had to get your mom to sign for stuff, how old are we talking about that you are? I got,
1: the, uh, I got a chemistry set when I was 13 uh, for Christmas. And that really uh, set me down the path of, of chemistry and learning uh, about chemistry. And so I would, you know, want more chemicals, to replace what I was using in the, the set that I've got, I wanted more powerful chemicals because I wanted to do things that were beyond, you know, what what that set uh, prepared you to do. Uh, for the um, swapping the brains and the hearts, I I needed scalpels, I needed a syringe, and at that time, a syringe was a big deal. Uh, they were metal. Uh, You know, you used them over and over. You just sterilized them. You know, today they're plastic and you use it one time and you throw it away. Back then, you know, buying a syringe, you were a nurse or a doctor or a drug addict. So when a 13, 14-year-old shows up and says, I I want to buy that syringe, that, that was a big deal unless you had your mother with you. And if she said, he's not a drug addict, he's doing experiments on animals, let him have the syringe, you know, I got it. Well,
0: I don't even think that you could tell people he's doing experiments on animals anymore and get away with that. But let me me ask you. No, it was a different world. Absolutely. But let me ask you, back to the original question of it, how much do you think that, individual thinking and that working on the chemicals working on the different things that you did how much do you think that helped you out further in your career
1: well I think particularly uh, when I went to Southeast Asia I, I had learned a tremendous amount by then I thought differently I analyzed things differently I was I had trained myself to be very observant you know when I was in high school I took every math course every um science course chemistry physics everything that that was there so i used that Uh, the university of clemson was about a 20 minute or so drive from my house i discovered that they had a library and i could use it i couldn't check books out but i could go there and go to the bookshelf find the books i was interested in Uh, i could read them there in the library you know, I did a lot of that, going down on the weekends and spending time in, in the university library uh, so I could learn a lot more than, you know, what my high school books were, were showing me. And, you know, I, I had planned on going to school and getting a degree in chemistry and wanted to get a doctorate in chemistry so that I could do research, um, you know, once I finished that. So... I was trying to prepare, I took, um, I studied German because they, they told me that, you know, if you were going to be a doctor or chemist, you needed to be able to read scientific papers in German. I took Latin because they said, I, you need to understand Latin. Uh, it, but anyway, I found out later, I really didn't need that. Uh, they were written in English. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> but, you know, I was going by, you know, the advice that I was getting at school. But, uh, I mean, it didn't hurt me, but um, it, I could have spent that time doing something else, you know, learning other things.
0: Yeah, but, you know, I think you were kind of the whole package. You're, you're now a lifetime member of Mensa, correct? Yes. Okay. So you're this guy that. It's such a puzzle. You have been part of MAGVSOG, which is one of the most legendary uh, military forces ever in the history of the United States. Uh, You studied chemistry. You have a Ph.D. You had a lab. You have all these things. How you pick the things that you pick, because you're going down this path of chemistry and reading and learning all the time and going to be a researcher and then we get to graduating high school where also you played sports and you, you kind of did everything. You get to college, you go for about a year and a half, and then you say it's time to step away and help out the American war effort. You've you got to have kind of helped me to understand how that thinking happens.
1: Well, you know, as you mentioned in the, in the beginning, I came from a very um, patriotic military family. You know, my, my father uh, was military, so I wanted to do my part for the country. If we were fighting a war, I wanted to make sure that I was, you know, uh, I got to participate in it. And at that time, every evening at 5 o'clock, you would you'd have the national news come on. There would always be a big segment about Vietnam, the ladies' battle that was going on or what was happening. And there was a lot of, you know, what was propaganda being put out about, yeah, we're winning, we're crushing them. The war can't last much longer because, um, you know, we're really um, destroying the enemies. So as I thought about that and, and, and thought, I've still got to finish my undergraduate degree then get a master's degree, then get a doctor's degree, it'll be over. It'll be over before I get my undergraduate degree completed. So my thinking was put a pause on school, enlist, you have to enlist for three years. So I go do my thing for three years with the military. Then I just come back to school, pick up where I left off and continue um, with the chemistry degrees and uh, end up you know being a, a research chemist the problem was that once i got into the actual army <laughs> um it was fun yeah. i mean <laughs> you know it, you think about it they were paying me to go run around in the woods like i you know did when i was little they were they gave me the the latest Uh, rifle um, started out with the m14 but they gave me an m14 i mean uh, i'd been shooting m1 rifles um, you know hunting with them and things like that i i was a very good marksman you know when i went in the army because i shot so much but all of a sudden they're giving me the the latest weapon they're giving me a ton of ammunition to shoot free I didn't have to pay for anything. They took me out to a range, uh, and they gave me some additional instruction and said, "This is how it works." I was when those silhouettes pop up, you knock them down. If you hit them, they'll go down. And they're scattered at various ranges, you know, out to about 350 meters, and and that was great. They pop up, I hit them. Uh, I was the, the the I maxed the marksmanship course you know in the basic training class because i could shoot before i got there and then they just helped make me better you know so it was i was physically fit so the physical training wasn't a big deal uh, it was fun and they just you know they kept giving me things to play with and it was fun and then when i went to advanced infantry training i, I got and all of a sudden they give me an M- m60 machine gun qualify on. That was fun. Um, They gave me an automatic M14 rifle, um, which was a lot of fun to shoot. Uh, They gave me the pistol.
0: They just kept giving me all these things to do. I understand that it was all fun. Here is the other part that is kind of a disconnect for me. At that time when you joined, you are a college student. And at that time, the sentiment through a lot of colleges was, They were really against the war. There was a lot of whatever you want to say it, dissenters there, however you want to say it. So that's another thing to me. You're so deep into these studies. You see all this dissension going on and you still have the fortitude inside you to go into the army. Did you get any kind of now? I know your mom wasn't very happy with you going in. But other than that, friends, things like that, did you have anyone else saying, man, what are you doing? You, you, you should stay here. You should do that. Was there any of that a problem? I did lose some friends by doing that. It was
1: If you really wanted to simplify it, it was like there were two groups of, of people in my age, um, people like me that had a haircut similar to what I have now, uh, and people who had <laughs> hair down to their shoulders parted in the middle. So okay. you, you could, you just looked around. As soon as you saw somebody's haircut, you you knew what the, their position was. So I, I did lose some uh, high school friends, um, but I also ha- had high school friends that, that went in the military. So, you know, but my focus was to go in. If I lose them, I lose them. I'm going to do this, and then I'll come back and, uh, you know, go back back to school. But. You know, once you get in and you get to start doing all these things, and, it, and you know, I get to go to airborne school, they sent me to OCS, Now I became an officer. Yeah, we, we to- need
0: to talk about that for a <laughs> minute, Dick. Now, you weren't done with school. You should not have been an officer. Shouldn't have even been sent to OCS, is that correct? I mean, at that time, now, I know there was some waivers and stuff going on, but...
1: Well, they preferred that you had, you know, a, a college degree, uh, but I had a year and a half. You could get into OCS, you know, with that. Um, and, you know, so that's what I did. I got in, I, you know, I, I had done very well in basic and AIT training. And at that time, lieutenants were getting killed so fast in Vietnam <laughs> that... You know, if they had somebody step <laughs> yeah. up and say, hey, I, I want to be a lieutenant. I know their life expectancy is about a day and a half. But, um, you know, I think I want to do that. They get paid more money than what I'm getting paid now. Um, they have more responsibility. They're in a higher leadership position. So I can do that.
0: What's the discussion with your mom about? Your dad was behind you, but what's the discussion with your mom about going?
1: Yeah, well... You know, she obviously was concerned about about my safety, that, you know, I don't want you to get killed. And I'm concerned that if you go in, uh, you'll stay and you won't come back and finish school. And I said, I, I will. I'll, I will finish, you know, school, but I, I need a three-year break to go do this thing and then I'll come back. So she never really liked it, um, but she supported it to the degree that she could It took me took me a little longer than I mean, three years to get around to uh, finishing the degree you know because i I didn't get out when the three years were up you know Uh-oh. I stayed in <laughs> <What>? <laughs>
0: Let's talk as you get there about, uh, a drill sergeant you had, uh, he had a ranger tab and kind of everybody listened to him. Is this what took you from where you thought you were going to go in the military to where you ended up going? Yeah. I mean, you know, I had seen, you know, when I was little,
1: uh, I had seen, um, Darby's Rangers, the movie about Darby's Rangers. Uh, and I thought, wow, <laughs> those guys are really tough, really cool they're they're the ones to be with so i was excited about that uh, i had seen the green green beret movie a little bit later but that was relatively that, or, new
0: right the green beret movie the book oh, yeah. was out but that was relatively new right and
1: you know when that guy came in in the morning we were all in bunk beds and i don't know 3 30 or 4 in the morning and he's Flip the lights on, screaming and holler, and get out of the bed. And the people, the bunks closest to him, he just started pushing over. They fall off on the floor, people crashing and burning, and he's screaming and yelling. And everybody's jumping around. You know, I could see what was happening. So I got out and got in front of the bunk. Um, so by the time he got down to me, you know, I was standing there at attention. But I was thinking about him as, I mean, he's a tough dude. Uh, there's some big boys in here. There's some big old boys in in here that's in those bunks. He's pushing over the floor. Nobody was going to mess with him. You know, I could see the ranger tab on his shoulder and I thought, holy cow. And then, you know, he got us all out in the formation, ran us over to to the mess hall and he was singing a Jody call about, you know, I want to be an airborne ranger. I want to live a life of danger, all this kind of stuff. And So my mind is processing this and saying, yeah, you know, even when I was a little guy, I wanted to be a ranger. And then this person is just reinforcing that. So once I get through basic and AIT, then I need to see what I can do about, you know, getting in the rangers.
0: Did you ever talk to him about the ranger squad that you had back home when you were growing up? (laughs) No, no. All right. (laughs) So, as you yeah, I didn't
1: talk this. to anybody about that <laughs> while, while I was uh,
0: that's probably a good
1: idea, Dick. Yeah, in fact, was, let me just grab something. Okay, I know if you're just listening to the audio, this is the logbook. This is it. This, all right, this was this is the logbook from that we made when we formed the Ranger Company. Wow, man. You know it's falling apart now. It's hard, you won't be able to see it on this screen. You find the, the there you go, there you go. But you know, most of the writing has faded away. Uh, but all the names are in here, different things that, that we did, the members. Um, you know, we even have, had one um, member that we had to um, court martial <laughs> and take him out of the, com- uh, the company.
0: So, well, had, what was his what was his offense?
1: He had a tendency to uh, misrepresent the truth on a regular basis. Okay. Uh, so we just we couldn't believe what he was saying, and uh, so we had a little court martial ceremony and we moved him out.
0: Wow, so, you guys took care of business. So, yeah. in the army. <laughs> Are you looking around and saying, is it a different feeling than you felt in school because you were so dedicated to your studies and stuff? It's hard for me to imagine that you go to the Army and you're loving it so much. Was it a completely different feeling and you thought, this feels right, maybe even more than college did? It was more
1: action-oriented, and I, I like that. I like the physicality of it. I like the weapons, you know, like I was talking about before. Uh, But they had something called a charge of quarters where, you know, at night when the trainees were asleep, they had to have a drill sergeant there in the orderly room, you know, kind of watching over the company and making sure we didn't get in any kind of trouble. Uh, And he would have a trainee with him, you know, so there'd be the, the cadre member, the drill sergeant and a trainee that would, go get him coffee, go get him whatever he wanted. But when when I had that duty, I saw a book laying on the desk, and it said Drill and Ceremonies. And I opened it up and started to read through it, and I thought, all of the marching, all of the commands, everything that they give us when they move us around, they're all in this book. And it tells you how to do it. I mean, step by step, I mean, if you're marching, uh, it tells you when to give the preparatory command so everybody hears that you're about to turn to the left and how many steps before you give the command of execution so that people turn, how to salute, all these different things. So I read it that night. I read through it and the next day when we had a formation, I began to see where the drill sergeants were making mistakes. And I made a mistake. I corrected one of them. And a trainee does not do that to a drill sergeant. So I got a lot more exercise, you know, pushing us a little closer to China. A lot of push-ups. Um, I, You know, I was getting pretty big into chest and shoulders and triceps and basic training because... I I was still learning when to just keep my mouth shut and let things go on like they, they were. But I was excited. There are books to learn all this from. <laughs> so uh, there are books on marksmanship. I mean, the army you know got a book on everything, a manual Pretty on everything. Yeah. And
0: Pretty I started
1: much. finding those things and reading them. You know, so now I was getting some academic type study combined with, you know, read about it, study it, go do it, go execute, now get better.
0: So, so I guess the the big thing to me is, you know that you're going to, I mean, you joined to go help in Vietnam. I mean, that's what you did it for. Your father's generation didn't talk that much about war. He had been in two wars. Is there any kind of advice that he gave you before you went in and kind of stuff that you took to heart, because I can't imagine that there was that much, uh, that he talked about. He mostly, when he talked, if he
1: was talking to me, it was mostly because I had asked about something and he was telling me what the platoon did, what the company did, what the battle was like. He didn't talk about what he did. Um, you know, I, now I would hear him talking to some of my uncles and they'd be going back and forth about, you know, something they did or, uh, stuff, but he didn't, he didn't talk to me directly about what he had done. I mean, he did much later in life,
0: uh, but, but not at, at this point. Do you feel that when he actually did open up to you about those things, that your relationship kind of changed that you got closer because you could understand each other in a different way than a lot of people can.
1: Yeah. I mean, he, he realized, uh, when I came back from, from Vietnam, he realized that, uh, you know, I had done a lot of things and that he could say things to me and I would understand what he was talking about. And, and that's a problem in general. Uh, with the military, I mean, today, you know, the the Afghanistan guys, will, they'll tell you, nobody, unless somebody's been to Afghanistan, or they run across an old guy like me that was in Vietnam, nobody understands what they're saying. I spent a lot of time with, with vets, you know, particularly vets with um, PTSD, uh, helping them, uh, and one of the first things they tell me is, wow, you... You understand what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, I do. Been there, done that. Uh, I know what it feels like. I know what it looks like, what it sounds like, what it tastes like. Um, so when you're telling me, I hear it. I experience it. I see it. I know what you're talking about and how, it, how you know it made you feel and how it's making you feel when you relive it right now. So they get excited about that, being able to talk to someone who understands what they're saying.
0: Well, we can go ahead a little bit there, uh, with the PTS, you, you know what they're feeling. Would you say that a lot of the people that are trying to be in that care market for that don't really understand where these guys are coming from. And that's kind of the first breakdown that happens in getting help and getting to a better place.
1: I I think that slows the process. I mean, the, people who haven't been in combat but their therapist or whatever working with the vets, they hear a lot of the same stories over and over enough they know what people are going to say they haven't experienced it you know I can I can tell someone what it feels like to walk out on the open ramp of a C-130 at 30,000 feet and total darkness outside two o'clock in the morning with your parachute on and you walk out to the end of that ramp, it's like a a really high diving board. And I can tell you what it feels like when you go off of that thing uh, and and you fall for three or four minutes, you know, and, and hoping you're not over a mountain and you splatter before you open your parachute. But until you do it, you can't really understand what it feels like. I mean, in your mind, you create... Uh, an image um, of what it feels like but the, you know i thought i had a good idea of what combat was going to be like i i thought i had a, a grip on what it was going to be like and then the very first mission i went on we got ambushed in the helicopter i never you know even imagined anything like was happening that, that many bullets would be in the air at the same time coming from all those different directions, hitting the helicopter, hitting the guy next to me, crisscrossing inside. It was just unbelievable. You know, I couldn't get to my, once I emptied my first magazine, I couldn't get the second one out of my pouch. My hand was just soaked in blood and it was slick. The magazines were packed in there tight. I couldn't pull it out and I eventually got it out. But it took me a while to do that. You know, I learned a lot of things about fear, about stress, about the fact that your stress level goes up, you start to lose your fine motor coordination. You know, you can do big movements and things, Absolutely. but to do something fine, like, you know, I, I tell people now, if you think your stress level is going up, it's starting to get high, you know, just just take your pen and try to sign your name on a piece of paper if you're in a place where you can do that just try to sign your name and then look at it see if you can even figure out what name you just wrote because your your fine motor skill that you use in writing as your stress level goes up it goes down and writing just becomes less and less legible so anything that you're doing that requires that fine motor skill uh you know starts to to go away your vision change it. I, uh, I know you probably want to talk about this all together later, but I mean, your vision changes. You've been going to the firing range and shooting at those targets. You know how to get a perfect sight picture, how to line everything up and uh, which sites to focus on and things. But when your stress level really starts to go up, you can't even see the sights. You, you can't see up close. You get tunnel vision. Uh, your fine motor coordination is gone. Your hands are shaky when you're trying to do things. So it, it becomes much more difficult uh, to hit a target that's right in front of you when your stress level goes up. You can hit it all day long on a range.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I don't mind that we talked about this because I think it, it will tie back in going back into what you did in Vietnam. I wonder if we can go back to when you very first go to Vietnam. 1968 is when you arrive, correct? Because you joined in 67, so you arrived there in 68. You're assigned to FOB1, RTE, Alabama, correct? Right. As you land in Vietnam, I want to talk about everything that you're going through, physiologically, physically, uh, psychologically, everything that you're going through. When you touch down there and you know you have chosen an assignment that Quite frankly, they told you lieutenants are dying at a faster rate than they can put them in. What are your thoughts as you hit the ground? Because I always want to ask this. When you first get there, when you've been there for a while, and after you leave.
1: It was interesting. It was a very long flight to get there. And then 20 minutes or so before we actually arrive, you know, we're on a civilian plane. Uh, The pilot announces over the PA set. Uh, you know, we're, we're almost there, we're about 20 minutes out, and I just want to uh, share some things with you so that you don't panic. When we get to the airfield, we're going to come in pretty high. We're almost going to dive like we're nose diving into the ground. We're going to go down really fast. You need to have your seatbelt really snugged up. We're not crashing, but we're going down really fast. And at the last minute, you know, we're going to level off, hit the runway, and we're going to taxi really fast on the runway. So keep your seatbelt on because we have to make several turns before we get to where we're going to offload you. Uh, And we don't want you falling out of your seat or something while we're doing that. Uh, And once we stop, we're going to open the front doors and we want you guys to exit as quickly as you can without hurting each other, but we want you off the plane fast out the front doors because the back doors are gonna open and the people leaving are gonna be coming in the back door filling the seats. So we're getting you out the front, the people leaving on the back will be refueling the plane while all of this is happening uh, and we have to do this quick because the enemy likes to try to hit us when we're, as we're coming in because we get low, hit us while we're attacking, hit us while we're stopped, and we've got all you guys trying to get off and the other guys getting on. So we're a big target. So we don't want to be on the ground a second longer than we have to. So, okay, so we, we were ready for that and then he says all right we're starting our descent and he he does he just nosedives dives like we're crashing down toward the ground flare out run around and you know i i saw it as i left the world that i had grown up in i left a set of rules that i understood i knew how to survive i knew what things looked like i knew how to navigate around but when i stepped off the plane I got hit with a red dust that was in the air. It was windy. I could smell the jet fuel, you know, burning. I could hear aircraft going all over the place above us. I could see other aircraft taxiing and taking off. There were vehicles scrambling around on the ground. It was noisy, um, smelly, and we were moving fast. I stepped into a different world. It was like it was just another dimension I'd walked into everything smelled different, looked different, tasted different. At the time was 12 hours different. So night and day had just changed on me. Uh, circadian rhythm is still locked into the U.S. And now I'm in, a, in one that's the opposite. The people there, the Vietnamese, they were small. And I th- I thought, well, I like this. I'm not used to being able to see the looked down at the top of people's heads you know i'm not the tallest guy around but all of a sudden i am i'm pretty tall so i, I kind of like that so and everything was moving moving fast and you know the special forces guys uh, you know grabbed me up me and, and some of the other guys who were going to have a special forces assignment took us off in a different direction took us out of the mob and over the word of special forces guys in process, and kind of took care of us over there. Are you excited? Are you nervous? Is it a mixture? Yeah, I was. I was excited uh, to look around, see what was there. Um, but you could, you knew, that everything was very dangerous. I mean, if you're going to nosedive a civilian aircraft down to the ground, uh, there's something going on down there. Uh, and and I I discovered very quickly that that was pretty standard technique. Even after we got on the military aircraft, they went down really fast. They took off and went up really fast. You know, that first day we went over, they put us in some quarters. But a, a friend of ours had gone over about a month before us, and. He'd already, he, he was already in his assignment, but he was still there in the local area. He came over, met us, took us to a bar, you know, and started kind of explaining what was going on, you know, because the Tet Offensive was still going. So he was kind of catching us up, telling us what was going to happen to us the next day as we went through the processing. He was the one who mentioned at the end of the day, tomorrow, they're going to take you guys in a room one at a time, And they're going to ask you about volunteering for SOG. And he just said, whatever you do, do not volunteer for SOG. (laughs) If you do, you're going to die. If you don't die, you're going to get the crap shot out of you. And you're going to get sent back as a nutcase. You know, you're better off just get shot and killed rather than come back as a nutcase like that. and go through all the pain. He said, they already have your casket for you. I mean, they got them stacked up to put you guys in, or the sod guys in, so don't do that.
0: Is this a green beret
1: telling you this? Yeah. Okay. He said, people don't know what they do, but we know they almost all of them get killed. It might be really cool stuff that they do, but they're going to die doing it. So you come back and tell me what your assignment is tomorrow, uh, I might know some guys where you're going to go. But whatever you do, do not volunteer for SOC. You know, when I got in at the end of the day, the colonel picked up my records, and he's looking at it, and, you know, he says, I see you volunteered to come in the Army. Uh, you you volunteered for OCS. You volunteered for Airborne School. You volunteered for Special Forces. You volunteered for Rangers. You volunteered to come here to Vietnam. He said now i'm going to give you an opportunity to volunteer for the most important job that you can ever have (laughs) (laughs) and i I, you know i'm hearing the sales pitch coming he said you're just the kind of guy i'm looking for and he said you know there's there's a group here called sog and you should seriously consider joining i said well what do they do he said well the only way you can find out what they do is you have to join because nobody knows what they do until they get there. But I can tell you, you will have to sign a, a non-disclosure that says you are willing to go anywhere, do anything at any time, and not tell anyone anything about it for 20 years. And nobody can tell you what they do until you get there. You have to join to find out. I said, and you want me to join talk? And he said, yeah. I said, I'm your guy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you couldn't make a better recruiting poster than what he had just said. Go anywhere, do anything, and not tell anybody for 20 years. I'm your guy. You know, I'll, I'll do that. So he got the paperwork out, and I signed up. You have to do—you had to volunteer for six missions or six months, whichever came first. Or you know, if he died, they'd ship you back with your coffin. But so I—I I went ahead and volunteered, and he said, you know, I'll give you some instructions of where to be tomorrow morning. I said, okay. So I went back, back to the bar, you know, where my friend was. Um, and as I walked in, you know, he just looked at me and he said, you did it. I can tell by the look on your face. You did it. You stupid, you know, whatever. Uh, I told you not to do that. And you did it anyway. And he told a bartender to give the stupid uh, SOB, Jack Daniel and Coke, double. And then, you know, about 15 minutes later, my buddy came walking in, and he said the same thing to him. He said, I can see it on your face. And he said, Bob, I thought you were smarter than Thompson. You went over there and volunteered just like he did. So he had to work to get him a drink,
0: too. So anyway, he was not happy that we did that. Okay. For the people that don't understand, explain the six missions or six months, because I think that people kind of get a weird sense of what that means. Well,
1: when you're, when you're in SOG, SOG runs missions primarily in other um, Southeast Asian countries. So a SOG mission, you're, you're going to, be to to a combat deployment into North Vietnam or Laos or Cambodia, Thailand or wherever, uh, depending on you know what they need done. So you're volunteering that you would you would do six of those missions, or if for some reason things happen and you couldn't get six done within six months then your, your voluntary statement was up. So you could say, okay, I've had enough. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm still alive. And I think I want to stay that way. Some people, you could really get out after one mission. I mean, there were people who just said after one mission, I'm not doing this again, this, I, this, I'm just not going to do this again. It was very different when you went to another country. In Vietnam, you were fighting, you know, North Vietnamese, but you were still in a country where you had all kind of support all around you. There were a lot of people, uh, and the engagements were typically, you know, pretty small. But when you went across the border, it was just your little team against every how many hundreds or thousands of the nva hardcore nva that had been especially sent back uh, to kill SOG teams to hunt SOG teams down and kill them when you when you made contact with the bad guys there was always a ton of them and a lot more coming once they figured out where you were they were coming and you were out there by yourself until you could eventually get some air support in if the weather was bad you couldn't get air support so it was just you and all of them.
0: And and you're talking 10, 12 man teams at the most, right? Like a 12 man team is probably the biggest team you're going to see.
1: Yeah, you, SOG teams, you were supposed to have three Americans and nine indigenous people, mercen- nine mercenaries, Vietnamese, Laos, and uh, uh, Mountain Yard or whatever. But what you typically ended up doing is picking and choosing. I mean, the three Americans would go if you had three Americans, uh, and some of the, the little little guys would go with you. Rarely did you take the whole 12 men, group. Right. And, you know, various people, um, they kind of settled in on a number that they thought worked the best for them. You know, I like six. Tilt often took seven, but rarely did we, you know, take much more than that at a time. But I could get six on a helicopter usually and, and just go in with one helicopter. You know, if I hit seven or eight, I had to have two helicopters to get us in because of the, the high temperature and the altitude. If you were going into the mountains, you know, the, the helicopter just couldn't pick up as much weight as it could down down by sea level. You know, plus what happens is every time you go out, somebody's going to get hit and either killed or wounded bad enough. They can't go on the next mission, you know? So you're ro- kind of rotating the people in the, that you've got kind of a cycle you know, of attrition. Yeah. You know, your team gets, keeps going down. Um, rarely do the team have three Americans for very long. Really? American, they get hit and, I mean, I was, the the last half of my tour there, almost every mission I went on, I was the only American on the team.
0: Okay, so how does something like that work? Because I've talked to Tilt about it a lot, and of course there's interpreters on the team, there's, you know, you, you have a very close relationship. But one American on the team working with, all indigenous personnel or mercenaries, however you want to call them, how does something like that work? Because one, you're outnumbered from the jump going out. If things turn bad, it could be very bad for you. So what do you do to work on making sure that you're in command of that team and that it's not going to go south on you at least?
1: Well, you've got to build a trust with the team. And, you know, that that takes it takes some, some time and some work, but they also know you're their key to getting out. You're the lifeline back to, to friendly forces, to the helicopters, to the air support. You're the lifeline back there. So they, they want you to stay alive uh, as long as you know, they can keep you alive because you can, you can call back and get somebody to come get you out. You know, I I carried the radio. Normally, the team leader didn't carry the radio. Uh, I think Tilt, tilt might have carried his most of the time. I carried mine all the time. I wanted to have the the mic and be able to talk to the air support and make sure they were putting it where I wanted it. And, you know, I was telling them what was going on. You know, I just liked it better like that. If you and I go out to some degree... You know, in, in my mind I'm always thinking, <laughs> I gotta take care of you. Right. I've gotta be careful. I don't I don't let you go somewhere, do something that's gonna get you hit or killed. And if you do, I'm gonna make a major effort to try to get at least get your body back if I can without getting anybody killed. And I'll try to get the little guys back too, you know. But you're you're I'm going to try to get you back. I never left uh, an American. You know, it just wasn't going to happen. You know, in the the first two teams I had, I had other Americans on on the team, and eventually, <clears throat> toward the end, uh, I had two more Americans join my team. They went on two or three missions with me, and then then I left, and they took the team. And the next mission they went on, they both got severely uh, wounded they got out but they were done in terms of Sog. they were shot up so bad i even volunteered on several occasions just send me on this particular mission just send me i can do the mission i can do it better uh, i can be quieter i can get more information i can do whatever just send me out there and if things go south you've lost one crazy SF guy. You didn't lose a whole team. You didn't lose aircraft coming in to try to extract the whole team. Basically my boss and my boss's boss said, you're crazy. We're not letting you go by yourself. I mean, I did later on, but it was because a situation came up where they didn't, they didn't have an opportunity to tell me I couldn't go. So I just (laughs) went along. So,
0: I want to talk about that first mission that you said where you never thought that there could be that many bullets coming in. Can we talk about what the mission was and just kind of work through this mission and I'll kind of ask questions as we go through it?
1: Yeah, it was uh, when, when I first got to FOB1, there were I don't know, five or six new guys coming in. Uh, we all got there together. Uh, we had a meeting with the sergeant major and, and he said, I'm going to send all of you guys to a a training course we call a one zero school, a a team leader school. We're going to send you to that for a week so they can teach you about how to lead SOD missions. Uh, And everybody will be leaving tomorrow morning except for you, Lieutenant. He pointed at me and I said, I don't get to go. And he said, your special forces qualified, your ranger qualified. They're not going to teach you anything at that school that you're not going to learn in the next couple of days from the team that you're going to be on starting tomorrow. So we're putting you to work. The other guys are going to go spend a week down South and get some more training before I put them on a team.
0: Now is that the school that I, I think Travis made that school up, right? Uh,
1: Maybe it's, it, this one was specifically for, um, you know, one zeros. It was right. run by former one zeros. So right. all these people have had done the job and they taught you a lot of little things um, about, you know, how to lead a team. But <laughs> it, it turned out. It would
0: have been important for you to go.
1: There was a there didn't seem to be that much okay um, there were a few little things but you know i went i went to our lounge um, you know the the bar and there were a lot of uh experienced guys in there and and current one zeros uh if you said tell me what i need to know i mean it, they would tell you i mean it, There's nothing they'd rather do than tell you techniques and things. And and one of the guys told me, he said, let me tell you, Lieutenant, when you go out there, never, ever shoot somebody one time. When you go to shoot somebody, you shoot shoot him three or four times. If he twitches, you shoot him three or four more times. You can't believe the number of SOG guys who have been killed by dead NVA. You walk past them, and they're not dead, and they shoot you in the back. When you put them down, you put them down for good. You make sure they stay down. I mean, just things like that and and just different techniques and things to do and not do. Uh, So picking up all of that, you know, every night that I was in the club, whenever I could uh, get in there and and talk to people. So it was almost like a a training center. You you just had beard. beer and liquor to drink while you were in there.
0: Best kind of training there is.
1: But, uh, well, the sergeant major said, go draw your gear. Go to S-4, draw your weapon, draw your ammunition, draw your basic gear to get you through tonight. And, you know, tell Sergeant Jones that you're going to come in tomorrow morning to help him with his project that he has. I said, okay. So I went over there the next morning, and... I'm here. What do you need me to do? And he said, well, we had some guys killed a few days ago, and we need to send their personal effects back home. And I need an officer to inventory and and sign off on it that there's nothing classified uh, in their personal belongings and stuff. So he said there are seven duffel bags in there. Just dump them out one at a time. Go through. If there's a letter, read it. If there's a picture, look at it. Uh, look for anything that might have classified information in it. And maps or anything like that, take it out. We don't want it sent home. And so I go in and I pick up a duffel bag. And on <clears throat> the names are stenciled on the side in big white letters. And the first one I picked up was a guy named Lieutenant stacks you know when i saw that name i thought wow that's my buddy um, and he had left about 30 days uh, before i left to come over i knew he went to special forces but you know we never heard anything back we didn't know where he got assigned what he was doing and now i know he went to SOG and it's 30 days later, and I'm sending his personal effects home. So, you know, SOG became real, really quickly. And then I had to, you know, inventory all seven of those. They were all on a on the same helicopter that was shot down. And I got hit at about 3,000 feet and just dropped like a rock down into the jungle canopy and exploded. So we lost those those seven guys plus the four air crew that was on it. They couldn't be recovered. So they were, you know, missing in action. But, yeah, that, that kind of got my attention. They had a little movie theater set up, a piece of plywood painted white, and a little projector under a little piece of tin uh, to keep the rain off of you. So I went to that that evening to watch it 15 minutes after the movie started, I heard a loud, pow and the, the guy sitting next to me fell off the bench and you know everybody realized somebody had just been shot in our group i went to the to the ground with the guy to try to help stop the, the bleeding if the bullet had been you know 12 inches more uh, to the left it would have hit my chest instead of him so i thought hmm Movie night might not be so so great if you can get shot while you're sitting out here. And then, I you know to get to your question, I, I know I took
0: a long route to get there. No, I love I love the setup about it because I, I think that, did you realize that, you said that it got real, real fast, but did you realize that it would do it that fast? I mean, did you have any comprehension going into it?
1: No, not going into it, just that. We were going to be doing something really cool and really dangerous at the same time um, we were we were playing with the big boys this, this is the elite of the elite i mean it just didn't get any more elite um than what we had volunteered to do i mean everything when we, <laughs> i are we'll back up for just a second if i can my my buddy and i both volunteered and we were told where to be the next morning to get transportation up to to C C N up to Danang. So we got on a plane, a black plane, painted all black, uh, no seats, just seat belts on the floor. The crew chief came by and said, "We're going to take off really steep. We're going to land really steep. Steep. Make sure you have those seat belts fastened on you." going to be uncomfortable but you're going to pull a lot of g-forces so okay so we do that we got off the plane the black plane and a escort picked us up and said there's going to be a bus here to pick you up in a few minutes to take you over to the headquarters so we're standing there waiting and we see a bus coming and when we saw it we knew it had to be a SOG bus not just because it was painted black but because all the all the windows were shot out, the seats were all ripped apart, apart where bullets had hit them. There were, we could easily see two hundred bullet holes in the bus. He mm-hmm. <laughs> drives up, and you know the driver says, "We'll be leaving in a few minutes. We're picking up a team here, also. You guys go ahead and get on the bus." And you know my my buddy said, "What happened to this bus?" And the driver said, well, there's a place we have to go through on the way over to the CCN. Uh, there's a pass that we have to drive through. And the, they like to ambush us a lot when we go through that <laughs> <path."> <laughs> So, God, we're not even going to get there. You know, we're going to get killed before we get there. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, thin air, this this team appears. And, you know, n- never seen anything like that. They had on uh, uh, do rags around their head. Uh, no dog tags, no patches, no rank, no nothing. Completely sterile with weapons that we hadn't seen before. Tons of ammunition and grenades hanging all over them. And I mean, scary dudes. I mean, these people look like if you even made eye contact with them, they're going to rip your face off and eat it, you know. So. We try not to make eye contact, but they got on the bus, and as soon as they got on the bus, they took up defensive positions all around the bus. And, and the guy we assumed was the team leader said, if anything happens, you two get on the floor and don't get up until I tell you to get up, and you'll be all right. Yes, sir. <laughs> we, we can do that. And, you know, they were, they appeared to be very excited that they might get ambushed on the way. I mean, <laughs> they, I mean you, you just, these guys made the hair stand up on the back of your neck and your arms when you looked at them.
0: <laughs> it was just, they were awesome. Does it, does I mean, it fill you with pride seeing that? Like that, you're them <laughs> now.
1: Well, I will be. Right. Because right, I was thinking, Wow. In a few days I'm gonna be on a team like that. And, and I mean these guys are awesome. I mean just I just to have the equipment that they have. I'd never seen anything like that. You know, and I was in special forces before I came over. But I'd never seen the kind of weapons and stuff that they were carrying. I'd never heard of anybody carrying that much ammunition and grenades and stuff. So and then when we got where we were going at the CCN, they got off the bus and it was just, you know, you blinked and they were gone. It was like they just disappeared. And you thought, did they go into another dimension? What happened to them? They wasn't running. They just stepped off the bus and they were gone. But anyway, whenever you saw uh, those kind of people, they look different than everyone else. So when you when you go to when you go to Sog. You know, during the the eight years or so that it existed, there were two or three thousand people in SOG across that time frame. But there were only about five hundred of them who were operators, like those guys that that got on the bus. So those people were different. They were the ones who went to the other countries. They were the ones who went out there and took on the. The, the hordes of NVA coming after him, trying to hunt him down. Everybody else in SOG supported those teams that were going out.
0: And of course, you're you're talking like Alabama, Idaho, yeah. all those teams, correct? Yeah, Yep. Yeah. So,
1: yeah, it, I mean, they were deadly, and you could see if, if you when you got around somebody who had done a couple of missions or so. You could see it in their eyes. They, There was a cold look in their eyes, you know, because of the things they had seen and done that, you know, it would scare you. I mean, they were scary dudes. And you knew, don't mess with those guys. Your body just wouldn't be found. So... <laughs> And, right. and, the other, and the other, one one more on that. No, absolutely. You were, you, were in, you were in teams. Right. So, RT Alabama, that team is a team. It's its own little entity. And even if you're an, another operator, do not mess with that team. That team doesn't care that you're an operator with another team. They will take you out and they were very protective of the Americans on on that team. You mess with their Americans, they'll take you out. And it was like it was like the old wild west inside, you know, those, you know, FOB 4 or 1 or whatever. Everybody's walking around with guns, hand grenades, ammunition. You couldn't do that in the in the regular military units there. You couldn't walk around uh, carrying out ammunition and grenades and things like that in, just inside the compound. But everybody in Assad compound was armed and dangerous. So much so, you had to feed the indigenous forces at different times. You couldn't feed the Vietnamese in the mountain yards in the mess hall at the same time because they'd start shooting each other. <laughs> they didn't like each other. So, you know, everybody... <laughs> So you fed them at different times. You know, the Laotian teams, the Chinese teams, the mountain yards, the Vietnamese, they all had a different feeding schedule in the mess halls. You couldn't put them in there together.
0: Did you have a favorite that you liked to work with? Um,
1: I enjoyed the mountain yard. That was the second team that I had. Um, The the last team I had, I I was back to uh, Vietnamese. Those guys... I don't know. They just, we all really bonded quickly and, um, you know, they were good. They, I mean, they were really good. The mountain yard one was too, but uh, I spent more time. By the time I got to that third team, I knew, I knew what I wanted to do, how I wanted to do it. And I started enforcing a lot of uh, different rules and, and techniques and things with that last team that I had learned as I progressed through the first two teams. You know, so I did after action reviews after every mission. I did post mission training with the teams, but I, I learned that across the first two. by the time I got to the third one, I had it down pat. I knew exactly how much ammunition I wanted them to carry. You know, I had the SOP of what goes in each pocket. You know, if you get hit and it's dark, I need to know where to reach to find your map, to find your notebook, to get your ammunition, to get your knife, whatever I needed to take off of you in the dark. I knew where it was going to be. I didn't have to know who you were, just know you were one of our team members, and I knew where to
0: look to find whatever I needed to get from you. Well, and with Alabama, you were never, you were a one one with them. You weren't a one yeah. zero with Alabama, yeah. right? You didn't take right. over as one zero till Michigan. Right. Okay.
1: So, yeah. So I was learning a lot. I had to learn how to talk on the radio, how to put into airstrikes, all those different things.
0: Yeah. So I wanna talk about a couple of the missions. I wanna we we've gone all around it and I, I love the stuff that we've talked about because I think it's gonna lead into it. But this very first mission, after you see these guys, you think they're awesome, you see the weapons that they're doing, you know that in a couple of days you're gonna be doing this. Fast forward to first mission that you're going on. Your stomach's gotta be turning, you gotta be doing everything. Let's talk about what the mission was going into it. And then as you come back, you're alive off your first mission. What are you feeling? Cause there's gotta be a huge adrenaline dump at the end.
1: Yeah. The first mission was a, a wiretap, So, you know, they communicated a lot across wires with, with radios that went through the wires like phones. So one mission we would do sometimes is we would go out. Where we knew they had strong wire, and we would tap into it with a device that we had. It had a recorder on it, and it would record uh, their transmissions on there, and we'd bring that back. Uh, so that's what we were going out to do this time. We had a, a small team. We we're all in the the one Huey aircraft. You know, so the the doors are all the way open. You know, there are no seats. The door guys have a seat in their little little. Covey hole back at the back of the aircraft, but the rest of us were on the floor. <clears throat> no seat belts, we were just in there. You know, the, the plan was we'd start, we'd come in pretty high, about 3,000 feet, and we'd get close to the LZ. They had blown, dropped a bomb and blown a big hole in, in the jungle canopy. And all of a sudden, you know, he just cocks it over on the side and, and turns so the power off of it basically and down we come, uh, the blades are turning just because the air is going through them as we're falling. So that's keeping us controllable and uh, but still moving really fast. And then once we flare out of that, we're over ridge line, we're down really close. Almost the skids are almost dragging the top of the, the canopy and You know once we got on that short final then we had to get out on the skid of the helicopter uh, and stand on the skid Uh, and when i got out there i i looked and i saw you know about five or six hooches thatched hooches and i i said to myself that wasn't in the briefing they didn't tell us anything about a village being right next to where we're going in so anyway i had to get focused back and i'm looking and i'm watching and thinking you know an nva could take a rock and throw it up there and knock me off the skid if he wanted to so i was a little nervous standing out there you know plus i'm this is my first time i've, I've never shot anybody before but i I've, I've been talking to myself about it's okay to do this i mean this is what we're here for so, if we see them, we take them out. We come to to the hole in the canopy where we're gonna settle down in and I'm out on the skid, and we're settling down, but then we stop our descent, and we're still about six feet above the ground. And you know i I'm carrying eighty or ninety pounds of gear and thinking, <laughs> when I hit the ground, if I jump off of this, and go six feet before I hit the ground, I'm probably going to break a leg or something. But, you know, that's what we're here for. At least it's kind of soft where the bomb blew, blew it up. So, you know, myself and the other American on my side, you know, we kind of bent on our knees, squatted down to jump off. And just as I squatted down, I see a guy in the corner of my eye over here pop up. He's got an AK-47 pointed right at me. And I thought, wow, <laughs> I mean, do right on top of me, he's going to shoot me. So in, instead of jumping into the bomb crater, I pushed myself up and back onto the edge of the helicopter. The second I did that, this guy opened up with the AK. It went right across where my legs were half a second before and hit the guy next to me. Hit him in the legs, took his legs out from under him. He starts to fall. I grabbed him by the back of his harness and, you know, one-handed, I put a half a magazine in the guy that, you know, was shooting at us. And I took him out. Um, I dragged, you know, the other American back up on, in the aircraft. And then, you know, I put the other half a magazine in a guy I saw. There's about 30 or so of them just right around the bomb crater, some in trees, some on the ground. Uh, and they're shooting at us from every direction, and the bullets are just coming. So, if you, if you think about it, you had, you know, 40 guys with AK 47s shooting at us on automatic. You have two door gunners uh, with their M60s, and they're, they're firing, you know, about 600 or so rounds a minute. They're both firing uh, into the tree line, trying to hit them. We had two Cobra gunships who were flying in with us, they opened up with their miniguns, each one firing 4,000 rounds a minute. It, they're firing so fast that even though every fifth bullet is a tracer, it's just a solid red screen coming down on both sides, hitting the ground, ricocheting everywhere. Um, so everybody's shooting. All Everybody in the aircraft is shooting. I had two guys, little guys behind me, so I've got you know the muzzle of a car 15 right on each side of my my head i'm getting powder burns from them shooting and the other guys rolling around on the floor screaming blood's going everywhere you know and that's when i got all the blood on my hand i couldn't get the magazine out finally got it out then had trouble getting it in and you know i'm experiencing a, a level of fear that in my wildest imagination i i couldn't imagine that you could have that much fear because the bullets are just crisscrossing all around us. And we're just sitting there. And I'm thinking, are are we going to try to get up out of this hole or not? You know, what's the pilot doing? You know, they're shooting the front glass out of the the helicopter and stuff. And you can hear the metal clang every time a bullet hit the helicopter. Once I got that first magazine out, the others came out pretty fast and so I was able to go ahead and take out you know several of them and you know we finally lifted up out of well before we lifted, um, a big uh, blast wave came across us, almost knocked the helicopter into, to the trees. It was a tight fit anyway. and then some others came but not quite as strong. What was happening was, uh, the A1 uh, aircraft that we had with the Sky Raiders—they were uh, going after th- those little hooches that I saw coming in, because the hooches started moving, and it turned out that they were tanks oh my that, my that they had put the thatch stuff all around them to make them look like, you know, hooches. But once all the battle started, they started moving. So the aircraft went after them. They were dropping 250-pound bombs on them, and we were getting a concussion from that. But And more Cobras are cycling in, and they're shooting 40 millimeters. They're shooting rockets and the bullets. Um, but eventually, we, we kind of lifted up and got out of the hole. The North Vietnamese kept firing at us until they couldn't see us. And then finally, we got away from there, and we started climbing up. And then another group of them saw us with fifty calibers, and they're shooting. It's dark now, and the big red tracers are coming by. But, um, you know, I looked over at the team leader, and he turned and looked toward me, and he stuck his thumb up, and he's grinning like a horse eating sawbriars. He was so excited about, you know, what we did. And I thought, holy cow, he enjoyed that, you know. And... When we finally got back to the launch site, we got off. And I went over to him, and I said, I'm curious. How many magazines did you empty you know, while we were down in the hole? And he said, I I emptied six. And I threw two fragmentation grenades and a smoke grenade. And Lieutenant, if you don't learn to change magazines faster when people are shooting at you, you're going to (laughs) die. And I said, hey, copy that. <laughs> I will, I thought I was fast, but apparently I'm not. But I will definitely be faster the next time we go out.
0: You say that that's the most fear that you could ever possibly imagine that happened to you. And you're kind of a subject matter expert on this now with what you've done with your training and, and your studies. What stopped you from freezing up? What Now? Or When you look back on it. What do you think stopped you from freezing up? Because that's more fear than you had ever understood. It's yeah. very easily written away that you could freeze up. Yeah.
1: I didn't, I didn't freeze, but, you know, I did lose the, the fine motor skills. I had trouble getting the magazine in until I got started. Fear, fear is like fuel, and you have to learn how to use it. To give you more strength more power more ability to do things but it can also lock you down and you can't do anything you just freeze and i i didn't freeze i was scared i was also upset uh i i got really upset you know in the first minute because i thought i've trained for two years to get here you know i left college i trained for two years and i get here and i'm gonna die in the first 15 seconds of my first battle, I am not happy. You know, this is not what I signed up for. I'm supposed to take a bunch of these guys out. And not the other way around on a first mission. This, I mean, so I took some of the, the the fear and turned it more toward anger. Ain't gonna, I'm going to take out as many of you guys as I can, you know, before we get out of here. Um, and then, you know... I started doing that, you know, as I'd go through missions, realizing the fear can distract me so much from what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to make mistakes or not do it right. So I've got to learn how to manage the fear and use that to help me do the job uh, that I'm going to. I can't worry about the bullets hitting me. I I can't stop the bullets from coming. They're going to hit me or they're not going to hit me. I've got to be focused on what I'm supposed to be doing now, getting off this skid, running this way, shooting these guys over here, moving my people around. I've got a lot of different jobs that I have to do. I've got to use fear to help me do that, not to lock me up so that I can't do it.
0: Okay. So how long did it take before you got really good at that? Taking that fear instantly and putting it into fuel um a
1: little bit each time because there are different things that scare you the first time that i used uh, napalm i you know i'd seen it you know at a distance on a training range i had never experienced it up close where the heat will just cook you coming off of that stuff it takes all the oxygen out of the air you can't breathe. You're choking, um, and you have all the smoke and the heat. And if you don't get down out of the path of the heat, uh, even though it's a ways from you, uh, I mean, it'll cook you. And, in, and then uh, another thing that I learned about the napalm, first time I used it, was whenever you see it being demonstrated, it's in an open area. When you use it in a, a double or triple canopy jungle, it goes off up there in the trees and then it kind of rains down and it scatters around. So you, you're you making kind of a educated guess at about where this stuff is going to come down when you tell the pilot where you want him to put it. So you have to learn to look at the, the vegetation up there, the canopy, and kind of figure out what kind of scatter pattern you're going to get and make sure you put it far enough away from you uh, that it's probably not going to hit you. But if you put it too far, you'll find the, the enemy, the nva between where it hits and where you are, so it just pushes them against you. And by 69, they were starting to do that. Whenever you make contact, they would try to hug you, get as close to you as they could so that it would limit some of the air support that you had because you couldn't put it on them without hitting yourself. But i had to learn you know about napalm and where to put it how to put it and and that always raised my fear level stress level um because there were several occasions with the other team where some of us got it on us i mean it was small patches but you know you you can't put it out i mean it's almost if you get a handful of mud and put it on it and hold it on it you know for a minute or so then it'll smother itself out but sometimes when you take your hand off it'll flare back up again you know and that's we just got small gobs on us it sticks to you it's like you know the old jody call about you know napalm napalm sticks like glue yeah it does but i also found that the nva were human It's like us. They have the same fears. And when they see the gates of hell open right on top of them, and they see their buddies just totally consumed by fire, they see people stumbling around as just a human torch and eventually falling over. And there's nothing but a charred piece of meat left uh, when the fire stops. And it, it scares the daylights out of them, too. And if they think you're going to use it, they start moving away because they don't they don't want any part of that.
0: Let's talk about the psychological effect of stuff. When you and I first talked to each other, you had told me that you thought about things a lot, not necessarily while you were doing them. But afterwards, you thought thought through them and before missions and things. How important with what you were doing was the psychological effect? Because one, you're going up against forces that are way larger than yours by by a score how important is it for you to strike fear mentally into these troops that you're going after
1: i found that to be a very effective weapon against them just fear Uh, in the beginning like when i was with with alabama you know i was still learning they were still bad guys and you just shoot them or they shoot you but toward the end of alabama getting ready to move into uh, michigan i was beginning to recognize they're humans there are things that really scare them there are things they don't want to do and they've been told they've been trained they've learned from experience that sog teams behave a certain way which is typically break contact and run get away from them and try to to an extraction point and get extracted so they would come after you there was a guy a um, Vietnamese on Alabama that was really good at setting out claymores he he was predicting if they were chasing us which way they would come and he was good at putting claymores out putting a time fuse in it 30 second 20 second whatever and so we would be away from it and all of a sudden out of nowhere you know a claymore mine goes off uh, and that scares the people who are chasing you and it causes them to slow down a little bit so i started watching you know the impact it, it was having by the time i got to michigan i was daisy i was taking seven claymores and and you can wire them all together so that when you set one off all of them go off at the same time so i i would figure out at night what is the most likely avenue of approach that they're going to have to take to get to us if they hit us at night or at first light where they're going to come when i put seven of those things out and when with seven claymores that's ten and a half pounds forty nine hundred steel balls traveling at four thousand feet a second just the concussion of 10.5 pounds of C4 will do you in if you're anywhere around it. And those steel balls will just turn you into a pink mist if you're close to it, or a piece of shredded cheese if you're further back away. It it has a tremendous psychological impact when that thing goes off. And then I would put three more daisy chain together. So the people who survived those first ones and finally got the nerve to continue to come after and then three more goes off, they would start to say, this guy's a nut, he's crazy, and he's carrying a ton of nobody carries that many claymores, you know, because I, most teams, at most, each team member would carry one claymore, I had my team members carrying three. Three apiece. Three apiece. So if if it was a, a six-man team, I mean we had 18 Claymore. and you know the NBA just they couldn't comprehend that because they'd hit the seven, they'd hit hit the three, sometimes five, and then there'd be individuals going on, and that would just freak them out. I mean, you, you stop assaulting into that after the first couple. You don't want to chase us anymore because, you know, the guy leading that team is crazy and he's got a bunch of claymore. And, you know, so there are things like that that we would do. And then, you know, on Michigan, I started teaching my guys about being invisible, how to be invisible. So going back to when I was a little kid and stalking animals and trying to be invisible and not let them see what, what was it that I would see? How would I detect them? And, you know, deer hunters understand if the deer's coming directly at you, it's much more difficult to see than if he's going across in front of you. But even if he's coming at you, what deer tend to do is they move their head back and forth. And when they move their head, now you're getting horizontal movement which is easy to pick up. So I to the, the point man, don't have your weapon up and be going back and forth like that all the time when we're moving forward. Hold your weapon steady. Move your eyes. And Now you're going directly toward the bad guys and, and it's harder for them to see you. And we did a lot of just point shooting. Don't if you take the time to try to bring the weapon up so you can look through the sights and shoot, you'll be dead before you get it up there. You've got to learn to hit them from down here. You point and you hit. You fire a three-round burst, you're, you're going to get them. So we did a lot of training on the range in between missions like that, training to be invisible, train, training them on camouflage. If you break bushes off, break limbs off of bushes within an hour, The leaves turn over, and they're white on the bottom. So now you stand out against the kind of vegetation that you're using for camouflage. Your leaves are white now instead of green, like the ones when you broke it off. So there are a lot of different things like that that we worked on, how to walk quietly. Everything had to be secured. Before we get on the helicopter, everybody had to jump up and down. Can I hear anything? Is there any rattle, any noise about your equipment when you jump up and down? Is all of your equipment camouflaged? You know, do you have snap links, you know, the steel rings hanging on you that are shiny? Or have you wrapped black tape around them so, or painted them so that they're black and they're hard to see? We'd have people camouflage, put them in the woods, lay down, rest of would come over, What do you see laying there? If you're in front of him, what can you see? You don't want the bad guys to see anything. So, you know, we do a lot of crack just like that. The smell, by the time I got to Virginia, no soap used on your body or on your uh, fatigues within three days of going on the mission. They don't want the smell of soap out there. No insect repellent. Nothing that has a smell to it. Reduced the amount of spices that they put in their food that they carried with them. And and then eventually started changing so that we were eating the same spices, the same food that the North Vietnamese were eating. That way we smell just like them. If you had to poop... They smell like North Vietnamese boot. So, be as much like them as you can because you can, you can smell them. They're laying in an ambush. They're waiting on you. They're scared. They start to sweat. Fear sweat smells differently and stronger than regular sweat. So you can pick up the scent a lot quicker.
0: Let me ask you something that I've heard you say. <clears throat> you said that Of course, they were a fighting force to be dealt with. The problem with the North Vietnamese was the technology wasn't there for them. If they had the technology, it would have been a way more intense battle. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, they were. I mean, we were in their backyard. I mean, they knew the jungle like the back of their hands. Uh, They were fearless almost um, for the most part. Uh, they would come at you. The The North Vietnamese uh, that were sent down to try to hunt SOG teams, I mean, they were first-rate soldiers. I mean, these were the highly trained, highly skilled soldiers that were coming at you. They knew the terrain. They knew how to move in the terrain. They knew the most likely spots and, and routes that you were going to take. They learned fairly quickly. They if a helicopter lands over here on a ridgeline somewhere, a SOG team probably just got off on that ridgeline. So they immediately start sending someone over to try to pick up your trail and then bring a big group in to get you. So you're being tracked right away. They they eventually started putting up towers that they could put trail watchers in and they'd watch the, around the, the valleys and stuff and see helicopters coming. They'd watch for movement. You'd have trackers. They started using dogs uh, with the trackers to to try to track us down. They became much more skilled. We even started things, you know, by late 69, early 70. We might land at three landing zones. The team would get off on one of them. So now they've got three they have to go check out because they don't know which one the team got off on. So we started doing a lot of different things like that to try to confuse them, give our teams a a little bit longer to get away from where the helicopter landed, particularly with uh, Virginia, teaching them the human reaction to uh, combat. If I start shooting at you and you die behind a tree for, for cover, but now you're gonna return fire, you, from your perspective, almost, Everyone will come around the right side of the tree. The muzzle of that AK will come around first, and your head will come right behind it. I know you're going to do that. From my perspective, it's the left side of the tree. So I'm ready. I I saw you go behind that tree. I know you're going to come out this other side to shoot at me. So I'm already there. And when I see the muzzle, I know your head is coming in the next couple of seconds and I'm ready to put a three or four four round burst right there where your head's about to pop around because about 90% of the people are right-handed and they go to the right side of whatever they're getting down behind. So I taught my guys to watch for that, be ready for it. That way you can take out more of them faster, understand some of them might start to figure out that you're going to do the same thing. So we have to be careful when you go down, Don't shoot around the right side of the tree unless you just have to and we're going to start practicing shooting left-handed so you can shoot you know with your left hand around the other side of the tree or if you get wounded in the right arm or hand you need to be able to shoot left-handed anyway. So we started doing a lot of things like that. We also uh, found that if we if instead of running away, if we assaulted, that scared them to death. Soc teams don't assault, you know, and particularly in 69, about halfway through 69, we started getting 30 round magazines. I mean, the NBA had, had 30 round magazines all the time. We had 20. So we could put 20 rounds down range and we had to stop. And, and put in another magazine. So now we've got 30. We've got as many as they have. Of course, we had a little problem when we first got them. You jump off the skid of the helicopter, you hit the ground, and your magazine falls out in the mud down near somewhere, the grass, because the spring in the CAR-15 and M-16 was not designed to hold the weight of a 30-round magazine. So it would fall out. So they had to replace the springs so that, you know, we could effectively use the 30 rounds. But, you know, if everybody on my team's got at least one 30-round magazine and they've got it loaded, you know, that's the first one, when we initially make contact, I can put a lot of rounds towards you guys, a lot more than we could before. And if I put a lot of tracers in that first magazine, you don't just hear it crack by or, or hear it hit a tree. You can see those things going by and it has more of a psychological effect on you because you know you can tell they're coming. There's a lot more coming, and they're coming really close, and you see them ricochet off things, and they're bouncing all around, and that's much more scary than just having regular rounds come by. There are a lot of little techniques like that to change the psychological effect of that initial contact.
0: Did you find working because you're working with a different class of soldier, you're working with, like you said, the most elite that there are. Did you find that you saw people breaking down mentally at all, or did you see a different kind of, I guess, determination and drive in the guys that you were working with than you would see Big Army or anywhere else that was on the battlefield?
1: One of the reasons that when I uh, did go back to school i changed to psychology was i wanted to understand more why do these guys keep going out because the indigenous on you know my team they were doing this before i got there maybe two or three years they're 50 percent scar tissue they spend a year with me i go away the next team leader comes in and they just keep doing it why would they do that i mean every time you go out is is, you know, may well be the last time you ever go. And they keep going. Occasionally, you'd have somebody's quit, but not that often. And they fought hard when they were out there. I mean, they were definitely warriors. But trying to understand why they would do that, and, you know, it's kind of like Americans. You bond, and you're fighting with, with your buddy next to you, and you're fighting for each other. You know, even Americans, you're not, you're not fighting for mom and apple pie and the American flag. I mean, that all sounds good. But when all those bullets start flying, you're fighting for each other. You're fighting to stay alive and keep each other alive. And and you've, you've formed that bond. And that's one of the, the issues that you have with people not wanting to take a break you know you and i come back and i i say dj uh, i'm gonna let you set the next mission out and just recover i want you to get a little r and r let's send you to thailand taiwan whatever i want you to take a break and just recover a little bit and you say no no, no. we got a mission coming up i'm going i got to go on a mission i can't let you guys go out there without me and you know people don't want to let go, you get addicted to it, even though you know you may die when you go out there. You get addicted to it, and you you can't leave your buddies.
0: So is it the same as any other addiction?
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, the it's, the it's, same it's, physical characteristics are going on, the same physiological effects are going on, all of that. If you can explain that, I think that would really kind of open up some people's eyes to it
1: i'll say it's like a chemical addiction you know getting addicted to drugs because actually it it is chemicals that you're getting addicted to when when you go on the mix when when you're getting ready to launch on the mission uh, and you you hear the whine of the helicopter blade starting to turn you hear the whine of that engine you can see people uh, a lot of times you see the chill bumps on them, the heart rate starts to go up from the sound of that rotor starting to turn. If it's a a, a jet engine kind of, you know, Huey or something like that is burning the jet fuel, you smell the jet fuel, you feel the wind starting to come from the blade, the sand's blowing, I mean, your heart rate's going up, your adrenaline level's going up, Um, so you're starting to get loaded up some now you get on the helicopter, you go out there, you come in on that short final, you know, your heart rate's up, adrenaline's up, and you jump off, you go into contact, you do your thing. If you survive, you get you get a load of dopamine in your system because, man, uh, we did it. We took those suckers out, and, you know, you, you felt that rush of the adrenaline and, and the other hormones that are released, in there with, with the stress and by the time you get back you want more of it and you know so going back out on another mission you gets more of it in your system and if we take you off the team then it's not uncommon to see people have similar very similar withdrawal symptoms as if we were taking you off of a drug you know you have the psychological addiction you have the Physiological addiction of going out there, and some people won't stop until you know they get shot up enough; they don't have a choice, and then they have significant problems uh, with, with withdrawal coming out out of that, and and you need somebody to help you. You know, you may need a, a therapist to work with you, or you end up you know with a lot of anger, or are finding other ways like when when I came back I started making a lot of parachute jumps a lot of halo jumps you know jumping out of a out of an aircraft you know relatively high in the mountains and going into a small little clearing that's hard to get into um, you know that runs your arousal level up adrenaline level up, trying to get in there trying to do that at night Um, so that was a way for me to get an adrenaline rush you know scuba diving going in caves going in ships there are a lot of different things that i was able to do you know to to give me some of the adrenaline but let me calm down some at the same time i wasn't shooting people or getting shot at so it was a little safer you didn't get the same load of adrenaline necessarily that you do when the bullets are hitting all around you. Having other people uh, that you're talking to or jumping with that understand what you're talking about because they're experiencing the same thing. You know, when I came back, I, I went to the Rangers and everybody there to be a Ranger instructor. You had to have had combat experience. So everybody there, you know, had. Just come from Vietnam uh, once or twice. And, you know, so you had somebody you, you could talk to or was ta- trying to talk to you.
0: I, I think it's important to point out, and tell me if I'm wrong, when you were just describing getting on a helicopter, hearing the turbine go, hearing the jet engine start up, smelling that, I'm guessing that you can still feel that, smell that everything as you're explaining it right now. Yes.
1: It's just as, just as real as when it was actually happening.
0: And I don't think that a lot of people that aren't in military law enforcement, first responder, I don't think that they understand how much the mind takes you back to where you were. And I think that's a, big problem with moving forward with people's lives because like you said just describing that it takes you back so i'm i'm wondering one if you can explain just how powerful that is and two how do we start working on that to move our first responders our law enforcement firefighters military to be able to kind of compartmentalize that when those things come back up i'll give
1: you a Quick example, there's a a video game out, you know, SOG Prairie Fire, based on SOG missions, SOG teams. So I went on one of those missions as just a strap hanger. I was just going along with them. As I was running over to get on the helicopter, the video, you know, the helicopter in the video game, I'm running over to get on it. I could literally smell the JP-4 as I was going to the helicopter. And when I got on it and and it started lifting off, I could feel the butterflies in my stomach uh, as we were lifting off and starting to go. And, you know, after the the whole mission was over and we were all talking about it, you know, I, I was saying, I, I could, I could feel it. I could smell it. I could taste it. And they said, but there's nothing there. It's just a video. You're, you're not really there at the helicopter. And I said, you might not have been, I was, and that's how good your simulation is. The helicopter looked real. It sounded real. It felt real. Uh, and then my mind added the smells and tastes and other things uh, into the experience. So kind of like you're talking about with firefighters, with uh, you know, law enforcement, there are different kinds of things that will trigger that response in them. Different smells, you know, like sirens, you know, they, they react quickly. Uh, when they hear sirens, it runs their arousal level up. It can make them much more aggressive. Uh, if they have, if there's a high speed chase, that runs their arousal way up and if there are other you know law enforcement involved in the chase when they all arrive uh, you know where the person is they finally catch the person that's driving I mean they're so loaded when they get there the more people that arrive there the more likely the person's going to get beat up pretty badly and, you know, there have been a lot of experiences in the past, you know, where there have been videos. You can see all five of them were jumping on this one guy that they chased down because they are still loaded right now with so much adrenaline, cortisol, and, you know, they're going after him. And that siren, when they just hear a siren go by, you know, it revs them up. So you you have to, to do some work to get them so that they can dissipate some of that you know adrenaline that's about to load into their system and stay calmer there are different techniques breathing techniques and different things they can do to to calm down some i use the the deep breathing you know when we would turn in on the short final i would start doing a deep breathing to help you know get my heart rate back down some get my stress level lowered back down so that I could focus more on what I had to do rather than what was about to happen to me. Um,
0: And and you're, I'm guessing you're talking about like box breathing where you bring it in, hold it, put it out. Yeah. Okay. So when we're talking about uh, a lot of guys that are now, you know, have spent the last 20 years have spent their entire careers at war in the military. With police, law enforcement, that's the side that I speak from, with everything that's happened, with the riots that have happened, there's a very big growing dissension in uh, of the American citizen with law enforcement, uh, with firefighters that are handling this stuff. How do we start working towards fixing them? Because for a long time, there was a stigma about trying to get help from it and, and telling people it's okay to not be okay you just don't want to stay not okay how do we start moving through that and working with these guys and getting them in the beginnings of their career or even if they're in the middle of their careers to where it doesn't end badly at the end of their careers
1: one other thing a a, a friend of mine was um he was in law enforcement in the beginning of his career and then later moved over to the firefighting part. And he he was telling me about a year ago, he said, you know, it used to be that when the police would arrive, when they get called into a situation, people throw rocks at them. When we would arrive with the fire truck, as firefighters to the same site, because they needed us, people would cheer Tear us on, you know, they were glad to see us and everything. And he said, Now, one of the first things I issue my new firefighters is a ballistic vest to wear under their fire suit. Because now we're said to get shot just like, uh, you know, law enforcement does. They throw rocks at us, they shoot at us. So things have changed. So and, and the change, you know, particularly with the riots and all of that, defund the police, those things have put new variables out there uh, where you used to be respected and people would, most people would comply with what you said for the most part. And now they're subject to try to run even though they know you could stop them, but they believe you won't and they have to, they think they have to get away. If they stay there with you, you're going to beat them. So they try to run. So that's <clears throat> something that's happening. And, and you know, the, the police know that too. They know that if they don't get you down quickly, um, you, you may try to run. And you may have some kind of weapon with you. And you're looking for a weapon all the time. And you want those fingers spread apart, you know, as soon as you can get them apart. So you know they, they don't have anything. They're not grabbing anything. In which you also know they'll jump up and run with you standing there, you know, with, with your weapon pointed at them, and they'll try to outrun you. Uh, there's all kinds of things like that. But you'll also see people get shot multiple times. Uh, when there's four or five policemen there, and they shoot back at the police, everybody opens fire. And you get some cases, you know, I mean, just recently, there was a guy shot like 50 times. Obviously, it didn't take that many to kill him, but everybody's trying to, you know, take him out, neutralize him. But they're firing a lot of, lot of rounds at him. Sometimes you might only shoot the person seven or eight times. My feeling is if you're shooting a 9 millimeter and you got a big guy who's really determined not to be taken unless you just hit him in the right place with a nine millimeter you may have to shoot him seven times to stop him but with a 45 caliber you don't have to shoot that many times I mean it's the difference is amazing of the impact there are some things that you can do but it's getting getting everybody calmed down one of the things that the covey riders the guy that was in the forward air controller flying around over a team once they were in contact one of the thing if if you can listen to some of the audio tapes of those guys they're trying to keep the team leader on the ground calm they're trying to talk to him calmly and they're trying to okay buddy you know we're going to get you out i've i've got three cobras on the way they're about five minutes out and we're going to work those things right around you i just need you to just to identify your location and tell me how far away you want to put. Uh, we're going to get you out. We just need to, you know, suppress some of the fire, and then I've got some slicks that are going to come in and get you. And he's trying to keep you calm so that you can think and and make better decisions on what you're doing down there. And the difference in the voice when when your stress level goes up, the pitch of your voice goes up. You talk faster you talk at a higher pitch, you slur your words, you say diff- you say the wrong words, you screw the call signs up in a heartbeat. So there are a lot of things that go on as your stress is going up, but if you can have somebody trying to talk you back down, you know, we're going to get you out. You know, that that can help to actually get you out sometimes.
0: I think a a, a big thing with the law enforcement is is there's no off time. And what I mean by that, and I've talked to a couple of guys with military experience, where you go and you get done, you come back, you have decompression time, training time, and everything. With law enforcement, first responders, it never really ends. There's never really a clocking out period. So that, that period of hypervigilance is always in place. And I want to talk to you about, I know in your book, The Stress Effect, you talk about the seven best practices to prevent stress. Mm-hmm. I, I want to talk about those and that's how I kind of want to end our conversation in talking about how to prevent that kind of stuff. What you learned from all of your time in Vietnam, your time in the military, your time as uh, studying psychology. Let's talk about the seven ways to prevent stress and then how to turn off that hypervigilance or that constant running in the red. Okay. Think about, the
1: seven best practices for building stress resilience. So if I can build my resilience up, it's easier for me to manage stressful situations, keep myself calm, not get overwhelmed with with the adrenaline, and be able to make better decisions. Because we know, and I, I tell the guys all the time, you should tattoo on the back of your eyelids. As stress goes up, IQ goes down, emotional intelligence goes down, effective decision-making goes down. So you've got to keep your resilience up. You know, because if stress goes up, you just can't make good decisions anymore. All right. So after we, we did a lot of research and we found there were, there were seven practices that if you can do, it will help you to keep your uh, stress resilience up higher. So one of them is awareness, is being aware of what's going on in you, with you, and the situational awareness of what's going on around you. So I I should recognize when my heart is accelerating, it doesn't take much practice to be able to say, wow, I, I bet I'm, I'm probably 10 beats faster than normal right now. Something is happening. You know, I need to get control of this. I do the box breathing. I can feel my blood pressure's going up. I can feel it in my temples. And you learn where you're gonna feel it when your blood pressure goes up. I need to do the breathing. I need to relax. I need to close my eyes for a minute if I can. When your eyes are open, you're burning a tremendous amount of energy in your brain Uh, from the the, all the visual processes so there are a lot of things like that to help you increase your awareness so that you know the stress is going up you need to have rest so in between uh, these events you need to have some rest sleep if you if you can't get much sleep get what you can do the you know you, you can do the power naps they actually work where you sleep for 26 minutes and then you're up and moving. It, it makes a big difference in, in where you are mentally. Helps you be able to manage your stress. The um, going on a vacation every once in a while, trying to get a day off a week, at least one day in there somewhere uh, where you're not going out on a call. And that's, you know, when we talked about, excuse me, when we talked about, um, with Sog, you volunteer for six missions or six months. That's what they're saying. You need some breaks in there. If you do too many missions, you're you're going to lose it. You won't you won't be able to do them anymore. Uh, and and you might not recover from them, even if you don't die. You may be uh, so far down the hole mentally that you can't get back. So. There was always an avenue for you to get out even before the six missions, but they were trying to tell you these things are stressful. But with firefighters and law enforcement, they're going out there every day. Their break, if they get one, is in between shifts. You know, you, you need to be able to rest in there. You need to be able to get some exercise. You need to be able to eat the right food and nutrition. You need to have a support group. That support group, it's not necessarily where where you go sit around in a circle and and, and talk about it, but it, you know you got two or three friends uh, that you can talk to that understand what you're going through. You may have a therapist, and you don't need, have to have a whole lot of people, but you need somebody that you can talk to that you you can say I'm I'm starting to struggle, and they can say When's the last time you slept? What did you eat? You know, for lunch today. Do you even remember eating lunch today? Uh, so you you have <clears throat> you have that. You you have learning. You need to be learning all the time more about yourself, more about your job, more about managing your stress and where you are. Your attitude very important. Maintaining an attitude, good attitude, positive attitude. If you go back to uh, the support group. Having a buddy, and maybe somebody on your shift, maybe uh, if you're in law enforcement, is the the partner that you ride with, if you get to ride with a partner. I know now they're so slim out there. Having two people in a car is just a luxury that most places can't afford. They just don't have enough people to do it that way. Uh, But if you can have somebody um, that can look at you and say, are you okay? I mean, you're you look tired. You know what have you been eating? What have you been, you know, doing sleeping wise and stuff like that? Uh, or that you can go to and say, "I didn't sleep well at all last night." Watch me. Listen to me today. If I'm making decisions, listen. Listen to what I'm coming up with for decisions, and it's okay if you say, "When." Why don't we go walk around the parking lot for a minute before you finalize that decision? So there are things like a take a break. Just to do some breathing, calm down a little bit, get a little fresh air, a little sunshine, you know, five-minute walk. Uh, if you've got, you know, I'm not pushing a particular product. I'm just going to talk about one. The others are very similar. But, you know, if you, if you have an Apple Watch, you can set it so that it will remind you to do the box breathing so many times a day. And you can decide how many times you want it to do that. And it'll just alert you and say, it's time. Let's do a one-minute breathing exercise. It'll tell you, hey, it's time to stand up. You've been sitting too long. You need to stand up, walk around the room, do something, and then you can sit back down. It monitors your sleep. It monitors your heart rate. It monitors your breathing. It monitors the uh, sound environment that you're in, and it tells you if you're being exposed to too loud uh, of sounds for too long. So there are a lot of uh, devices that you can can get uh, that's helping you be more situationally aware of what's going on and remind you so that you can say, okay, yeah, I need to stand up for a few minutes. I need to walk around for a few minutes because as our stress level goes up, we forget about stuff like that. The more stressed we are, the less likely we are to stand up, to do the breathing, uh, to eat right or any of those different uh, best practices.
0: Some of the stuff that you're doing is amazing. Your book, the stress effect, it looks at almost every level of what causes bad decisions to be made in whatever job, but what I like about it is, is when you talk about the chapters and you break them down, there's actual stories built into the chapters when you're talking about certain things and how those relate to real life. Let's talk about your book, where people can find it, and what kind of the point of reading it is, because it's a very instructional book. It's informative, but there's a lot of backstories that go into it that are great stories inside the book
1: uh amazon's the easiest place to get it you can have it the next day you know from them
0: yeah the the book
1: is designed where the chapters have a story at the beginning just a short story that gives an example you know corporate military law enforcement whatever gives examples of the kinds of things you're going to talk about in the chapter so it makes it a little more Uh, interesting kind of hooks you into it shows you how it's going to apply and then it gives you you know a lot of information about what's going on what you can do about it and the second half of the book becomes much more um, prescriptive in terms of here's what you can do Uh, here's how you can increase your self awareness here's how you can do all these different things some cases it gives you checklists in there, points out other people who are doing it and gives you little little stories. So I mean I I'm biased, but I like it. And you know it has it has information, you know, that I picked up from a little kid all the way up through the military into the corporate world. And you know, it, it it's in there, it works. It's validated, uh, it's based on, on research, and it's very powerful. The new book that's coming out is more of what we've been talking about uh, in this session where it kind of talks through me getting to Vietnam, getting on the teams. But it, unlike a lot of the SOG books, it's out there this one says this is my perspective and it's following me all all the way through i mean there are other people till other people are in there that i talk about that i i knew or encountered or or whatever but you can you can see how there are a lot of things i didn't know in the beginning uh, but i made an effort to figure out why is it happening this way And what can we do about it to make it more effective? Let's do these after action reviews every time we come back from a mission. What did we learn this time? What do we need to do better next time? So let's go do some post-mission training because we had difficulty this time throwing hand grenades from the prone position. We couldn't get them far enough out or we're hitting trees and they're bouncing back. And that can mess our whole afternoon up. So we need to practice. We need to build the arm strength of throwing when you're in the prong. You know, if you raise up on your knees, you can throw a long way, it, but it takes- You're also you know, a very large play. target. Yeah. So uh, learning that, and then pre-mission training before we go out next time, let's go practice what we're gonna do. Let's rehearse it. Let's practice it. Um, practice setting up the ambush, practice setting up the playmorph. uh, go over the rules. Practice putting an IV in because everybody in the team had a a can of ringer solution that you could use to help replace the fluid. If you're bleeding a lot, you know, it's just putting, put the IV in. But, you know, my people freaked out because I told them we were going to practice that. And they, no, no, not sticking needles. And I yes, we are. You start with me. Here's the needle. Put it in. I want to know that the first time you try to give me an IV, if I'm bleeding to death and you're being shot at, uh, that you can still do it. I want you to have had some practice putting it in so that you you can keep me alive, that I can keep you alive with people shooting at me because the most dangerous thing we're gonna face out there is bleeding to death because it takes so long to get somebody out to us so much longer to finally get on an aircraft and then eventually get to a hospital. You know, you're going to bleed to death before we get there. Even if you're not bleeding much and that ringer solution can help keep you alive.
0: And so this book is telling all about that kind of stuff from your perspective.
1: All about it. Here's, here's what we trained on. This is why in one case, know we're carrying so much weight and and then i added more to it and i realized we need to do some strength training to be able to carry this stuff and when i told the team we were going to do that they just said no that's not going to happen we are not going to go exercise and and all that stuff okay i understand remember tomorrow morning we're going to the range uh, practice some shooting and some immediate action drills. I want everybody to take their full load out with them. You know, make sure your rucksack's loaded with everything you normally take on a mission, your load-bearing gear, everything. And, and then when I got them to the range, okay, down on your belly, crawl, throw the grenade, stand up, run over here, go down, get up, run over here, go down, throw a <laughs> grenade, shoot at these targets. They didn't mind doing that that's what they do when they go out to the woods except now they have their whole weight on them and they were getting the exercise it was just called something different and you know they did it and they got stronger i mean they were strong but, you know. so what's the name of this book uh the book is called um sog code name dynamite and then the subtitle is a Mac V 10s personal
0: journal. When can we expect it?
1: Uh, it was supposed to be available for pre-order now. It's been delayed a little bit. It's going to be the first part of July. You should be able to pre-order, it and get it. Hopefully by the end of July, you can have it. There's a lot there. So I ended up having to do two books. You get the first half, you know, because there's so much information in there about, you know, the missions, and there's a lot of missions. You have, you know, the, you know, some people listen to the Jocko podcast, and, you know, I, I try to remind them, we only talked about three or four missions in there. The book's talking about 20 SOG missions plus in country missions plus other things that we did in country, uh, you know, combat kind of stuff. So there's a lot of information in there, and it's telling you what we learned and what we changed and how we changed our equipment, how we started doing things differently.
0: Christmas stories in there?
1: The Christmas stories in there, yeah. (laughs) Um,
0: Good. I'm glad. People need to really hear the Christmas story. What I tried to do
1: was just tell it like it like it was you know here, here's where i screwed up here's where something happened that now it's funny it wasn't funny at the time but you know i screwed up some other people screwed up there's some things in there where i changed some people's names because they asked me to or because you know they they might, might be dead now but i just I didn't want their story to be lost. It, it was a story that maybe they wouldn't have wanted told about them. Right. So I just gave them a different name. But, but I tried to put things in there. If I screwed screwed something up, I put it in there. That's awesome.
0: I, you know, I'm so glad that, that you came here and talked. I can't wait for the books to see the stories because... You know, it's so funny. I just I think right before you and I talked, I spent the weekend with Stryker and listening to their stories and some other guys that came down and met. And it's just amazing to hear what a Thursday was for you guys in, in Vietnam, just a a Wednesday or a Thursday. I want people to find more of your stories. I want them to find the books. Of course, they can go to Amazon. We'll put that on the link. But if people want to contact you through social media or follow you a little more, how can people do that? Uh, you know, I'm,
1: I'm on Facebook as Dick Thompson. Uh, I'm on, um, Instagram as HPS underscore CEO. And and you'll find me. I'm on LinkedIn, I think it's Henry Thompson, but yeah, that all that's in the book. So that it makes it easier to go find me, you know, the emails in the book. So they, uh, if, if there's something you really need to talk about, you know, particularly if you are a vet, you know, law enforcement, firefighter, military, you know, you want to talk about something, let's talk.
0: One final thing that I have to ask you, if you could give one piece of advice from everything that you've done in your life, what would it be? I might, might have to give give you two, but one okay. find your
1: path, find your path, and get on it, and and stay on it. And in the in the book, you'll find some Sog imperatives uh, for success. One of them is adapt, adapt, adapt. And that was one of the things that I discovered, you know, right in the beginning was. It doesn't matter how great of a plan you can put together, how detailed of a plan you can put together. As soon as you step off the skid of that helicopter and start into the jungle, everything starts changing. And you have to adapt quickly uh, in order to be successful. And, you know, after a while, I figured out why everything starts changing. It's because when you sit down at the planning table and you plan everything out and you got your maps and everything and and you plan it out in detail there's an empty chair at the table the nva are not sitting there in the planning meeting they get what vote, happens is they don't they don't know what they're supposed to do according to your plan so when you jump off and run into the woods they just start doing stuff And it doesn't match up with what you planned. And now you got to start adapting because they're not doing what you thought they were going to do. So, but they don't, they don't seem to be interested in setting down at your planning meeting either. So, um,
0: (laughs) yeah, I, I think I'm always, uh, I think I'm going to live by, uh, your motto of when you step off the skids, there's always a tank dressed as a hooch. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs)
1: it's it's,
0: you know i i never thought about that
1: but i i saw them and i thought man why didn't they tell us about that i mean they're they're close
0: yeah yeah no kidding (laughs) i i like i said before i can't say it enough i'm so happy that you came on here and told your stories i hope to to get some of you guys together in a future episode where we can all kind of just talk kind of a fireside chat thing but i'm I'm so happy that you did this, and I'm honored that you came here and and told your story. Guys, you know where you can find Dick. Let's talk about where you can find me. You know we talk about it every week. If you go on to Instagram, you can find me at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast, and you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations, they're in video form for you to check out. But your one-stop shop, it's going to be DTDpodcast.net. Dick's going to have his own page. There's going to be pictures. There's going to be links where you can get the book, where you can contact him. And if you just want to talk to him or make contact being military, law enforcement, firefighter, and you just need to get something off your chest, it's all going to be there. Make sure you go there, dtdpodcast.net. Now let's talk about our sponsors, Mac Belts and Police Coffee. Mac Belts. We all know that nothing stands up to wear and tear like a good leather belt. If you're looking for the toughest leather belt on earth, you've come to the right place. MAC belts. They're handcrafted in the USA by veterans who are serious about their craft. If you're looking for a belt that's tough enough for your active lifestyle and helps support those who've given so much to our country, look no further than MAC belts. It's the toughest belt on the planet. And the Mac buckle consists of a hundred plus grams of unbreakable American stainless steel. It's engineered, designed, assembled, machined in the USA by USA built machines. And guess what? It's veterans that are doing it again. It's backed by a multi-generation warranty. It's expertly engineered to combine modern precision for rugged use. Go to macbelts.com. If you're law enforcement, first responder, military we're going to put a code up there that you can go and get a discount on it let's talk about coffee police coffee officer-owned business dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends and they're shipped as soon as they're made to provide you with the freshest coffee available each batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant and their specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavors is concerned their coffee some of the best you'll find but it also serves an important cause they give back to our community of their profits go towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. And if you want flavors, the new one that I just introduced last week, Lieutenant Colonel Grossman, Sheepdog on Duty. It's going to be a dark roast. It's roast to ship. It's only the freshest, high-quality coffee around. Energize your day or fuel your night shift with it. And if you want to talk about flavor, One Ranger, the newest flavor coffee you're sure to love. It's flavorful, medium body, smooth, sweet pecan flavor. It's probably one of the best ones out there. It's rich, sweetie, and nutty. Make sure you go to policecoffee.com. You put in DJK10. That'll get you 10% off your order. Guys, that's going to be it for this week. Thank you so much for coming here, sitting down, listening to these stories. Dick, thank you so much for being here. Guys, that's Dick. I'm DJ. Catch us on the next one. We're out here. See ya.